this podcast contains graphic or mature material. Depictions of murder, violence, and the death of a minor child are discussed in detail during this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back. We are the Cold Case Crew. We are a group of friends who have gotten together to take a look at some of the oldest cold cases around to give new life and perhaps a new hope of resolution to a decades-old story that has long since been silenced. My name is Whitney. That's Ashley. And I'm Beth. And we're going to be doing something a little bit different this week. In honor of the life of Teresa Woods and with the help and cooperation of her family, we are so thankful to be able to bring a part two to Teresa's story on the anniversary of her disappearance and murder. In this episode, we will dive deeper into the events of February 20th, 1986, and relive the moments from the perspective of those who experienced it firsthand. We remain hopeful in retelling Teresa's story that new information will come to light and justice for a life cut too short will finally be served. There are several points I would like to touch base on with regards to our previous episode. Some things have been brought to our attention that I would like to clarify in order to give you, the audience, a clearer picture of Teresa's life and the circumstances leading up to her death. Teresa Ann Woods was born April 6, 1972 to Donald and Betty Woods. Teresa spent most of her life in the community of Powelton, West Virginia, which is part of Fayette County. Betty and Donald divorced in 1979 when Teresa was just seven years old. Though Betty was granted sole custody of Teresa, she remained close with her father and would spend time at his house regularly. To say that Teresa was family-oriented would be an understatement. Family was central in Teresa's life. Summer times were filled with trips to Lake Stevens and camping and playing with all the cousins. They had a large family, but it was full of love and very tight-knit. Teresa was particularly close with her mother, Betty. When we were looking at those pictures, it was just so heartwarming seeing all their happy memories that they had. And she is her mom's mini-me. She is. Really? Looks identical. Identical. Teresa was described as a shy, introverted girl who didn't make friends easily. She loved to play the saxophone and the electric keyboard. Her family has expressed, like, from the time Teresa picked up the saxophone, her gift for music was just apparent. She could hear a song and could not even have to practice it, but could pick it up on the saxophone. That's, like, genius when it comes to music. I mean, I can't play any music. I know that Star Wars was mentioned that the Star Wars theme. She heard it and then immediately played it. Wow. And she was in the band and she was an honor student. Like most teenagers, she loved makeup and experimenting with her looks. And she loved songs such as Islands in the Stream and Thriller. And she even made up her own dance to Thriller. Oh, I love the Thriller dance. I think she had the haircut that was popular at that time, too. I read it was popular in some kind of magazine. Yeah, it was like on the cover of a magazine. The cover of a magazine. Betty married Rick Holcomb in July of 1981 four years before they would make the fateful move to Oak Hill in October of 1985. Rick was persistent in his desire to move to Oak Hill to be closer to work. Upon making the move to Oak Hill, Betty began work at B&B Convalescent alongside Rick. The family was also close with their neighbors and employers, the Skaggs, and they were regulars at weeknight dinners. Teresa quickly struck up a friendship with their eldest daughter, Angel, and soon they were inseparable. Another person who shared a close relationship to Angel was Rick Holcomb. The two had bonded during the months between Betty and Teresa's arrival in Oak Hill. 
And an example would be when Teresa's dog was hit, it was Angel that accompanied Rick to the vet's office. I can't even make sense of that. Yeah, I don't know. She's 17 years old at the time, and he's her father's age, I would assume, old enough to be her father. And just them two going to the vet. That's just very, very strange. The morning of Thursday, February 20th, 1986, was just another day for all intents and purposes. Teresa readied herself for school and even stopped to ask her mother how she looked that morning. Teresa was adorned in a purple shirt, blue jeans, dangly earrings, gray suede boots with a fur lining, and a blue jean jacket. Betty dropped Teresa and Angel off at school that morning, per usual, and when Teresa got out of the car, she turned around to her mother and told her, I love you, Mom. I'll see you after school. And this is the last time Betty Holcomb would see her daughter alive. That's so sad. You never know when you just say it out of habit. Love you. I'll see you later. And you never realize it's going to be the last time you get to tell somebody that. That's why you got to make sure you tell tell everybody you love them. Teresa normally made the trek to B&B Convalescent alongside her friend, Angel. However, on this particular day, Angel caught the bus to bring some school books to her brother who was homesick. She had planned to drop the books off and meet up with Teresa somewhere along her path so that she would not have to walk alone. It is said that Angel took the bus and was dropped off at the B&B offices. But this is where the events of February 20th get blurred. When school let out, Teresa began the 0.8-mile walk to B&B Convalescent, but as we all know, she would never make it to her destination. Around 3 p.m., Teresa was witnessed leaning against a pole in the 7-Eleven parking lot. This particular convenience store was a popular after-school hangout for local teens and was located just 0.2 miles from Collins Middle School on Jones Avenue, and it's very close. I wonder if Angel was supposed to go to B&B, ride the bus there, but maybe went home. There was some confusion because I believe there was a earlier report that said that she went home. But when we spoke to the family, they said that she went to B&B. Around this time, Rick Holcomb was out on a run. The ambulance had broken down earlier in the day and he was using the Skaggs truck in the interim. His paperwork from the day, which was usually meticulously documented, was incomplete. Rick and Angel met up around 3, 3.30 p.m., somewhere in that ballpark, and began to search for Teresa along Jones Avenue and at Collins Middle School. This is a full hour before Betty would call to notify the family that Teresa was missing. Buses were still running when an announcement rang over the intercom for Teresa, but she was nowhere to be seen. It was as if she simply vanished. And keep in mind, this is 1986, and we did not have cell phones. And also, Betty was not at the B&B convalescent offices this day. She was doing laundry. Neither was Rick. And if Angel was supposed to go to B&B, where would she have met where up Where did they Rick? meet up at? When Teresa failed to show up after school, her mother, Betty, became instinctively worried, and she knew something was wrong. Around 4.30 p.m., she called the family in Palton and Teresa's father, Donald Woods, to let them know that Teresa was missing. The family shared Betty's concerns and immediately dropped everything, came to Oak Hill to aid in the search for the missing girl. Very tight-knit family. They knew something was wrong. Everybody in the family. Even the little cousins. At 5.30 p.m., Betty called the West Virginia State Police to report Teresa missing. Initially, she was met with doubts and accusations that Teresa had simply run away. The family knew this was not the case, but they were still forced to wait 24 hours to make the report. Unfortunately, the first 48 hours are the most crucial in a missing persons case, and Teresa's time had just been cut in half. I think they could have sent somebody out. Well, you know, it was the 80s. It was the 80s, and, you know, things were so much simpler and different then. You know, now we have Amber Alert and all those things, and people take it much more seriously when there's a child missing. But back in that day, 
Just one officer. One officer. The family searched tirelessly for Teresa. As previously stated in our first episode, flyers with Teresa's face and information were distributed all over Oak Hill and Fayette County. One day when the family was out searching, it is recalled that they were about a half mile from where Teresa was found. But they were advised to turn around. And the person who advised them to turn around was one of Rick Holcomb's friends. I definitely think that he was part of it because and that road is not easy to turn around on. No, it's two lanes. Like, it was difficult to drive for one, and then, like, there was, like, nowhere to turn around. As time dragged on, the outlook for Teresa's safe return was turning grim, but the family still held out for hope for a safe return. Why would somebody take a girl who seemingly had no enemies? There is an unconfirmed early report that circulated that may have put Teresa as far as Main Street on February 20th. As described in that report, Teresa was seen getting into a blue car on Main Street, but again, we cannot find any verification on if this actually happened or who made the report. From here, there have been two stories that have been brought to our attention regarding the blue car. Both stories lead to more questions. Maybe you hold the key to unlocking these answers. The first story goes that a friend of Rick Holcomb's drove a blue car at the time. However, the day after her disappearance, it was noted that this friend painted the vehicle red, put a silencer on the car, and promptly sold it. The second story tells of a man who lived in the apartments behind the 7-Eleven gas station on Jones Avenue, who had commented on numerous occasions about how pretty Teresa was. This person had a known fetish for red hair, and they also worked at that intersection of Main Street and Jones Avenue. Their work schedule allowed for them to get off work around 3 p.m., and they drove a blue car at the time of Teresa's disappearance. It is said that within a few days of Teresa going missing, this person's personality did a 180, and he completely changed. He was a lifelong resident of West Virginia, and he just up and left home and his family. It's very strange. That is just crazy. All of a sudden, after something like that happens in your community, and then you take off and leave your family and your job. And and I think the family still has not had any contact with him either. Wow. It's very bizarre. I mean, I think that he's not in West Virginia anymore. He's still gone. Could either of these have been the blue car that Teresa was seen getting into the afternoon of February 20th? A third story that was retold to us claims that a family member of a family friend, try saying that five times fast, (laughs) had been acting strange on the day Teresa went missing. The behavior struck this person as odd. When the family member took some medication and laid down, they decided to go investigate. They began to poke around the car from which the family member had returned home in, and nothing abnormal was found in the interior of the vehicle. Although, when he popped the trunk, he was shocked at the discovery that was made. Inside was a white hospital blanket that had blood and pieces of red hair on it. When he moved the blanket, a dangly earring fell out, matching the likeness of Teresa's. The color of that vehicle is unknown, though. Is he one of Rick's friends? I am not 100% on that. What if he was, like, just where the stuff was put? How do you explain having a... Hospital blanket. Bloody hospital blanket in your trunk. Yeah. But I will say, the earrings that Teresa was wearing when she disappeared are on every missing persons poster. So who knows if this person was just trying to give a statement. Just a dangly earring. Just to say something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, witness statements are all over the place, so... 
Shortly after Teresa went missing, the family visited a local palm reader in Charleston in hopes that they could receive some sort of answer regarding Teresa's whereabouts, however unconventional it may have been. Interestingly enough, though, at the time, the palm reader revealed that not only was Teresa still alive, but that she would be found near the water. Was this palm reader onto something? Could Teresa have been attacked and left at Laurel Creek barely clinging to life? Okay. When she said that, completely gave me chills. Absolutely. She was found near, near the water. water. That is... Hopefully she was... Not barely clinging not to life. Not barely clinging to life. I just hope that... She, she didn't suffer. And she didn't suffer. Four months came and went. But on June 5th, 1986, two fishermen were out catching minnows in Laurel Creek near Fayetteville when they stumbled upon the scattered remains of a young girl. The remains were skeletonized at the point of discovery, but around the same area, they also found several tufts of bright red hair, as well as some scraps of clothing that resembled what Teresa had been wearing on the day she went missing. The police do believe the body to have been intact at the point of disposal and that the scattered nature was due to animals that had been scavenging. Those damn animals make that part rough. Mm -hmm. Like we've heard that in a lot of our cases and that's just... It's very sad. Yeah, it is. Plus, how much evidence did those animals just destroy? The remains were taken to the state medical examiner's office in South Charleston Identification via dental records was slightly delayed, though, because the family had sent them off to California, which has a nationwide database for missing children. Ultimately, though, the remains were confirmed to be Teresa's. The coroner's report found reasonable evidence that would rule Teresa's death a homicide. The Fayette County Sheriff's Office handled this investigation, and they used two approaches to work the case. The first being a murder that was sexually motivated, and the second being a murder that was the result of months of stalking the young girl. I can see it from both sides. Yeah, I can see it from both sides, too. Or I can see that, you know, maybe she knew something she wasn't supposed to know. And somebody wouldn't make sure she wouldn't tell. And felt like she was very close to telling. Yeah. The question still remains. How did Teresa get from the 7-Eleven on Jones Avenue in Oak Hill to Laurel Creek around eight miles away? Teresa was an introverted girl and a known scaredy cat. So it's highly unlikely that she would have gotten into the vehicle with a stranger. Jones Avenue at this time of day was a high-traffic route. Buses would have been running, parents picking up their kids from school, and kids just like Teresa walking home. With all the hustle and bustle, it just seems unlikely that Teresa would have been forced into a vehicle. Well, somebody would have noticed, you know? I mean, with all that going on, somebody kids be looking out the bus window. And and all the kids that are at the 7-Eleven store just yeah, hanging out. because it was a hangout, right. Or parents picking up kids or teachers leaving or who knows what. As was previously stated, the clothing and jewelry that was found along with the body matched what Teresa was wearing the day she had gone missing. The information led investigators to believe that she had been murdered and placed in Laurel Creek around February 20th. It's important to note that even to this day, Teresa's cause of death has been withheld and has never been made public. I wonder what evidence they have. There has to be something left that they could test. Well, if they were able to rule a cause of death, then there probably was some sort of evidence on the body or what was left of the body. Well, and they did say they found some of the clothes and stuff scattered around. It would be great if they could get those in for DNA testing. Yes, it would. Once the investigation was ruled a homicide, the police hired a psychic who specialized in homicides to see if they could gather any information with regards to what happened to Teresa that fateful day. 
the psychic who was and has to this day remained anonymous, had a 90% success rate at the time and has aided in multiple cases around West Virginia, Maryland, and Virginia. Very little information of what the psychic found has been made public. However, it has been confirmed that she was able to inform the police of several pieces of information that only they had knowledge of. She stated that the case would be solved in the 7th. However, seven days, months, and years have since passed, and, and then some. But Teresa's case is still cold. Well, we think we know what that 7th might be, and we're just hoping it is. In the month leading up to Teresa's death, she had notably been upset. The weekend before her murder, her father remembers her crying and begging not to return to Oak Hill. He tried to get her to tell him what was bothering her, but she wouldn't elaborate, only stating that she would get in trouble back home. Teresa was a private person, and she kept things bottled inside and didn't really like to bother people with her personal trials. It also has been said that she was having a hard time adjusting to life in Oak Hill. She missed the comforts of home, her family, and her longtime school friends in Palton. Teresa had spoken to her mother about returning to her old school, but Betty encouraged her to finish out the remainder of the year at Collins. Betty did make arrangements with her mother and her family for she and Teresa to return to Palton after the completion of the school year. I'm glad that she made that step into that. Like most girls at that age, Teresa's friends were very important to her, and despite the four-year age gap, Angel Skaggs was notably her closest friend in Oak Hill. Angel would recall that Teresa spent most of her time next door at Angel's house, only returning home to shower and sleep. I would like to clarify, though, that Angel did report to the Registered Herald that Teresa wanted to come stay with her before she disappeared, but Teresa's family was not aware of that desire and find it pretty unlikely. It was also noted that when Teresa told Skaggs that she would be returning to Powelton the next year, Angel cut her off mid-sentence. No, you aren't. How rude. Like, I mean, if that's your friend, you just want them to be happy. I'm curious about the nature of this relationship, though, because if Angel was a junior in high school, what is she doing hanging out with an eighth grader? They aren't even in the same school. I didn't hang out with eighth graders when I was 17. Teresa was laid to rest on June 10th, 1986 in Glasgow, West Virginia. The service was televised on WOAY. In the years following Teresa's murder, the family has been left with questions gone unanswered for way too long. Betty and Rick divorced in 1998, 12 years after Teresa's death. It was after this time that Rick moved in with Angel Skaggs. And the nature of that relationship is still unknown. Today, February 20th, 2022, marks 36 years since Teresa was taken from her family, who to this day still mourn her loss. A young girl with a bright future taken before her life could even begin. If you feel inclined, we ask that you take a moment to remember Teresa today. If you knew her personally, share a happy memory of her. Keep Teresa's story alive. Can we just take a moment right now? Absolutely. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding the murder of Teresa Woods, please call Crime Stoppers at 304-255-STOP. You can even submit a tip online at www.crimestopperswv.org. You are not required to give your name and are able to submit anonymously. We are a very interactive group. If you have any thoughts regarding the case, check out our blog that's been posted on our website, www.coldcasecrewwv.com. We share newspaper clippings, maps, images of the area pertaining to the case. We would love to hear from you and let us know what you think. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. What's your theory?